0: on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.
1: Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Rich, for those of you who don't know me, uh, and it's a real privilege um, this morning to round off our Advent series um, together. Uh, as Mike already mentioned, this is a very uh, special day, an exciting day in the Oasis calendar, uh, hence why I've gone all out on my kind of Christmas knitwear um, to ensure that we're kind of setting the standard as high as possible um, from the front. Uh, But I wanted to uh, start this morning uh, by looking at some words from a guy called Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, who lived in the 12th century. And what he said uh, was that there are three comings of Christ. We should look for Jesus as he arrives and as he comes, first of all, in the flesh in Bethlehem, secondly, in our hearts every day, and finally, in glory at the end of time. And in a sense, the three talks, the three parts of our Advent series have explored those three comings. Mike kicked things off, first of all, by looking at how we face the darkness, how we grapple with the reality of that, in order to understand what it means for Jesus to be born in the midst of it. And then last week, we looked at seeing light as Adrian invited us again to receive Jesus, the one who comes to us, the supernatural wisdom giver, the one who offers us freedom and strength, comfort and provision, complete wholeness. And today we're gonna explore the third part of that, what it looks like when Jesus returns to renew and restore everything, and how therefore we are to live, how we are to wait in between those times. Because that's the promise that's given right throughout the Bible, that God isn't just going to leave things as they are, but that even now he is catching us up and making us a part of his great plan, his grand plan to one day set everything to rights. And so, as we wait, we are to be those who increasingly learn what it is to live with a right perspective, who increasingly learn what it is to trust in him, despite what's going on in our own lives, and to be those who begin building now. And this morning, we're going to track those three themes, light, a road, and a throne through the Bible in order to see what it is to keep perspective, to learn to trust, and to keep building. And throughout this Advent season, we've had a candle up in the pulpit, and at different points have lit it in order to show something of the wonder of what it is for Jesus to come into the world. If you come back tonight, you'll get to see not just one candle, but many candles um, lit as we celebrate even more and more the wonder of what it is for Jesus, the light to break into the world, the true light who gives light to everyone, uh, as John puts it. Light is something that brings perspective, It enables us to see what was previously hidden in darkness. And right throughout the Bible, the big story of God and humanity, we see light breaking out in order to bring life, in order to reveal truth, and in order to dispel darkness. That's what we find on the very first page. Page 1, Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God... Everything is shapeless and formless and empty and dark. Particles of unsorted matter floating through space. And God said, light. And it happened. And that's the story of the Bible. God says, and it happens. God says, and it happens. God says, and the earth does. God says, and the humans do. God says, Go, have fun, have children, explore, rule, guard, keep care and love all of creation. Watch out for one thing, just don't eat from the fruit of that one tree, but otherwise, it's all yours. And that's what the humans did. And the snake said, did God really say? Are you really going to let your lives be restricted And determined by what you think he said. And the humans didn't. And it all went wrong. And darkness fell. But the story continues. See, God said, and Noah did. And Abraham did. And Moses did. And David did. And Israel did. And then they didn't. And light broke out here and here and here but never for long, and darkness fell again and again. And then God says, here is my son. Here is the true light. Will you receive him? And the human said, crucify him. And it happened, and darkness fell and the humans waited, and so did the angels, and so did the snake, and so did all of creation. And God said, light, and it happened. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And God said, one day all will be light, and it will happen. That is the big story. That's the big story of the Bible, the the story of God and creation, the story of God and humanity, the story of God and us. It's a story that is tied together by light. And that's why it's so important that over the last few weeks as a church, we've, we've got to grips with what it means to live in the midst of the darkness and yet wait and hope and see and receive the light that has come to us. Because the more that we do that, the more it shapes and changes our perspective, the way that we see the world around us. Advent invites us again to look at what God has already done and then fix our gaze on what he will do. Because if it's true, if it happened that the God of all creation took on flesh, stepped into the world, the one through whom all things were made and by whose word everything is sustained in every second of every minute of every hour of every day. If it's true that God himself became a baby at Christmas, walked among us, was put to death and rose again, then the pinnacle of history is behind us in the shape of a single earth-shattering, cosmos-defining event as Jesus walks out of the tomb. If what Jesus says about himself is true, then the good news for the whole world isn't primarily about individuals coming into a loving, living relationship with God. That's part of it. The big story The good news is about how the creator God launched his rescue operation for the whole of creation, a creation drowning in darkness and desperate for light. That's the future that we see at the very end of the Bible, the last few pages, the book of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22 when light floods everything when all mourning and crying and sickness and pain are done away with forever, when every tear is wiped away from every eye, when the world is set to rights with love and justice and peace. That's a future that we're all longing for. As we look around us in the world, we see it's a a future that our world is crying out for. But at the same time, it's one that we know we can't achieve On our own. Christmas is, in one sense, the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It doesn't say we can fix things if we try hard enough. It doesn't say it's hopeless, there's no point in any of it. Christmas means yes, things are bad. Yes, we can't save or heal ourselves. Yes, there is darkness. But nevertheless, there is light too. Nevertheless, there is hope. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. From outside of us, the uncreated light has come to us, the true light, Jesus himself. That is the revolutionary nature of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, the inauguration of, Of a new kingdom a new reality a sure and steadfast promise that says light has come and so it is coming we can bank on that revelation 21 22 future coming to pass because it isn't based on a vague hope but on the reality of a historical event that has already happened if you're here this morning and you can say that you've centered your life on Jesus, that you believe in him, that you've placed your faith and your trust in his life, death, and resurrection, then that's the place you get to live from. That's the perspective you get to live with. And if you haven't, then that's the invitation to come and place your hope, not in a vague possibility that one day humanity might get it right, despite what all of history has taught us despite all the darkness we see around us in the world. The invitation is to come and place your hope in the one who started it all off, who was there in the beginning, and now says, it is finished. The work is already done. Advent teaches us to be the most realistic people in the world because we have faced the depth of humanity's darkness and brokenness. But at the same time, it calls us to be the most optimistic people in the world because we can live with the guarantee knowing that what has been is a sure and certain promise of what is to come. That's the perspective that we're to live with now as we face our each own individual unique situations. As we go out into the world, not just on a Sunday, but every day, to offer that light to the world around us. And that's why we've lit a candle at different points. It's the light that reminds us that this is who God is and this is what he has done and this, therefore, is what he will do. So that's who we're to be, those who live with a new perspective. The second thing that Advent teaches us to be is those who live trusting Another aspect of God's promise to his people is that one day he would reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. We heard those verses at the start, that one day he will establish and uphold his throne, his rule and reign with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Throughout the Bible, this idea of a throne, this picture, this symbolism of the throne comes to represent God's loving grace-filled rule and reign over everything, when he sets to rights and makes the world as he always intended it to be. Of all the kings in the Old Testament, David had come closest to showing what that might look like. But even he had lived a broken life. He was a broken man. His life ended um, not in joy and happiness, but in uh, murder and adultery and revenge. His final instructions on his deathbed are not filled with life and hope. They're to tell his son to finish off the people that he couldn't. We need someone very different from David. What's needed is someone who can reign with justice, and righteousness for all but throughout all of human history what we see is that no political system no parties no policies have ever found that not in ancient Israel not in our day our very best efforts the very best efforts of our politicians and our leaders as we've seen this week in our own nation lead only to gridlock and anger and confusion. And part of the privilege of who we get to be as the church is those who stand in the gap and point to something different by trusting not in an earthly throne, not in an earthly power, not in an earthly system or structure or government, but in a very different throne. Something that unites people of all political persuasions. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. On a week like this week, if you've been following the news in our nation, we could add to that list, in Christ there is neither Brexiteer nor Remainer. There's neither labor nor conservative. The divisions we see outside of ourselves In Christ, in the church, are the ones we get to overcome as we stand together, as we give ourselves to serving the most vulnerable, the poorest in our society, as we get to live pointing to a very different kind of throne, a very different kind of leader and ruler. And sometimes the idea of God's rule and reign is painted in quite negative terms as if he's some kind of supernatural uh, dictator in the sky. He's either too involved and too controlling, or he's too distant and too aloof. But that couldn't be further from the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. John Calvin, uh, the great reformer, wrote that God has never revealed himself outside of Christ. And so if we want to get a glimpse of what it looks like for God to fully exercise his rule and his reign, for God to truly be on the throne, not just of our own lives, but over all of creation, as he one day will be. We just need to look to Jesus and see how he treats others. And what we find is that Jesus is constantly welcoming the lonely and the lost. He's constantly looking out for the ones that everybody else forgets and ignores. He's constantly using what he has to bring life and wholeness and healing to all those who will receive. That's the guy who's on the throne. That's who Jesus is. That's the kind of sovereignty and leadership and government that he leads. And I don't know about you, but as someone who is doing their best to follow Jesus, despite my many weaknesses and mistakes, I find that really good news. If I was in in charge, if I was sovereign over everything, then anything that went wrong, any problem that cropped up, any difficulty I faced, any pain or suffering I endured, would be down to me to solve. It would reflect back on me and my character. If I was sat on the throne, Life would be a constant struggle of things going wrong with no one else to turn to and nowhere else to go. Living in the light of Advent means living, trusting that Jesus is on the throne. That even as we wait for that to be fully revealed, it's a tension that we still have to grapple with even today. Another of the Old Testament prophets Jeremiah puts it like this in Jeremiah 17, verse 7. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. And on the surface, that kind of sounds like a nice little verse. It's kind of an encouraging little proverb. It's kind of snappy. You could imagine it being on your fridge magnet, It's that kind of tweet length um, thing that we kind of love. But when we unpack it a little bit more, it starts to get slightly uncomfortable. See, what we find is that Jeremiah is making a little bit of a distinction to trust in the Lord and for our trust to be the Lord might not always be the same thing. And that's part of my own story. There have been different points and different moments in my life where I've had to come face to face with the reality that I might have been trusting in God for things without my trust being God. You know, I am a bit of an overthinker, um, and so I find it easy for my mind to wander off kind of a year or two years or 10 years into the future and begin to map out and plan out all the different things that I want to do, all the things I'm going to have, all the places I'm going to have been. And all of that might be in God. It might all be good things. It might all be good ambitions. But ever so subtly, I've shifted my trust from being in God himself to being in God for things. And so when those things don't happen, when my plans don't work out, when it all goes wrong and when problems and pain come out of nowhere and seem to derail everything, it can be easy to allow that to knock my confidence in God because I've shifted my trust from God himself to what he might do. And he's never promised me that all of my plans and dreams will come to fruition. He's promised me himself, and he's promised me that he is enough. That's the question that Advent throws up for us. We're waiting and we're trusting. Is our trust more in what we want God to do for us than in God himself. The Israelites in Jesus' day were waiting and trusting for a saviour, but they got someone who looked very different from what they were expecting. For many, that was too much. They were wanting a political saviour, a military saviour, someone to come in and destroy and defeat the Romans, kick them out, and claim a new kingdom on the earth. What they found was that God didn't want to take a political throne, he wanted a personal one. And it threw them, they didn't know how to handle it, they didn't know what to do with him. They weren't ready to trust in God as he has revealed himself in Jesus. They were too caught up in what they thought they wanted God to do for them. That's the question that Advent raises for us. Are we willing to get off the throne, to trust in God as we wait? And the more we get hold of that, the more I believe we will come to experience, to know and to enjoy God's sovereignty, God's grace and love expressed in his rule and reign over all things as the freedom that it is. It frees us from the demands that we put on God to do things our way. It frees us from the pain of what happens when things don't quite work out like we think they should. It frees us from living with a sense of fear and anguish about what others think of us. One day, Promises that we'll see Jesus face to face and our trust will fully be Him. But one day, that's what He is going to do for us. We will see Him and be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. That's what it is to trust God now. And so, Advent shapes, it changes our perspective and how we trust as we wait as we've seen throughout this series, as we face up to the very real darkness in the world, it's not enough to just stand by and let it happen. It's not enough to simply allow ourselves to be caught up in systems and structures in the world around us which hurt the most vulnerable and the poorest in our society and our community. Instead, We are to be those who look forward to Jesus' return by playing a part now in building while we wait. And that brings me to my final example, the road. Right throughout scripture we see an impression of what God is gonna do as he builds a road for himself which will one day be fully revealed. And just like the people of Israel needed a prophetic call Um, from John the Baptist, before Jesus started his ministry, so too do we need to keep hearing that call that that shakes us out of our complicity and our lethargy, That so easily affects us, so easily gets into us, that stops us from seeing things as they truly are in the world around us. And I think there's a lot we can learn from how John did it. And so this is how Luke describes that in Luke chapter three. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. And I think that is a great passage, a great model for showing how and why we should build while we wait. And the temptation has been for generations of Christians to personalize and internalize this passage. Interpreting it as if John's main point um, is for us to prepare our own hearts. And that's part of what he's saying. It's true, but it's a very Western way of looking at it. It's very different from the context into which John was speaking. Or the context into which Isaiah was speaking when he penned those words, originally, 800 or so years before. The historian Diana Butler Bass writes that until the Romans came along, there weren't that many roads. Roads in those days were incredibly expensive. Uh, They were awful to build. They required huge amounts of work, um, a tremendous human cost from all of those who worked on them, uh, usually slaves or conquered peoples. Roads in those days were literally built on the back of the poor, and they were usually only built for political purposes, to move armies or collect taxes. In other words, roads in those days were a tool of imperial power used to oppress others. That's very different from our own context now. That's what we need to understand and see as we come to read this passage for Isaiah, uh, the roads in his day had been largely built by the Babylonians, and they were built through the wilderness uh, to enable them to hold festival processions uh, to their gods. Um, gods who were the kind of deities who demanded things like child sacrifice and body mutilation from their followers. And for John the Baptist, roads in his day were a symbol of Roman authority. They were essentially Caesar's highways, bringing back the wealth of the empire to Rome and sending out armies to claim yet more land, to conquer yet more people, to expand the empire even further. Nowadays, we might uh, complain about potholes and traffic jams, but in those days, if you had a road at all, it meant that more likely than not, you had been conquered by Rome that somebody had come and stamped their authority on you, that they had enslaved you to build a way through the wilderness which would demonstrate their power and their glory over you. That's the symbolism. And then we come to this scene, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And we can hear in those words the echo of a Roman overseer, someone shouting at a slave, work harder, no resting, build the road, prepare the way for the king. The sounds of Roman oppression accompanied by a whip and a chain, the only reward some meager rations at the end of the day if you survived for that long. But Jesus and John declare something very different. When John comes and speaks these words to the people of Israel, he's repeating the call that Isaiah made centuries before, and he's calling us to build a very different road, a road which doesn't bring oppression, a road which doesn't bring festival processions to gods like the Babylonians. It doesn't bring the army, it doesn't bring the tax collector, it doesn't bring Caesar himself. This road, the road that John talks about, the road that John declares, is a road to enable all people to see God's salvation, God's love and kindness poured out for us. This road is making a way for a very different kind king, a road not built with slavery or on the backs of the poor, but where the cost has been borne by the king himself. For both Isaiah and for John, this is the road that leads to the promised land, a place overflowing with milk and honey, a place where the thirsty find water, where the hungry find food, where prisoners find freedom, where the broken find wholeness, where the oppressed find justice. This is the road that we are to remember whenever we look at the stained glass window behind me. That's what Adrian spoke about our very first Sunday in this building, just over a year ago, that this is who we're to be as a people. This is the kind of road that we are to build, a road where every need is met a road where everyone is offered a home in which to be a part of. It's a road that leads us to a place where that Revelation 21 and 22 future we looked at earlier is fully realized. That's the road that Jesus comes to proclaim. And time and time again throughout the Gospels, we see that it is not a road which is only about internal, spiritual renewal. That is always a part of it. It's always there. But for Jesus and for the Old Testament prophets, that always comes hand in hand with a transformation in how we treat those around us, how we live in the midst of a world. And we see that in the life and ministry in Jesus that time and time again, the representatives of Rome come to him asking what to do. Soldiers and centurions, tax collectors and Pharisees, they all come to Jesus, individuals caught up within the system, building the wrong road, but who see Jesus and see that he offers a very different kind of way. And his message to them is a simple one stop building that road, stop building Caesar's road. Build the other road. Build the road not by placing a heavy burden upon the poorest and weakest, but by bringing liberation that sees that yoke shattered. Build the road not with armies and soldiers, but by gathering up every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood and making them fuel for the fire instead. Advent doesn't just call us to sit around and examine our hearts. It cries out to us to build a road in the world so that all people will see God's salvation. To open the way for love and freedom and justice and healing to come to all nations, to come to all who will receive And sometimes that's gonna require us to forge a new path through the wilderness. Sometimes to fill in valleys and level mountains to create something brand new. And sometimes it'll mean setting straight the crooked paths, smoothing the rough edges, transforming the broken systems that we find ourselves in. But we're called to build the new road now as we take action in our waiting, in readiness for the day when Jesus comes again in glory. That's always the impression that the Bible gives. That's always the imagery that we see when the Bible talks about Jesus' return and what it's gonna look like. Sometimes uh, Christians try to make it seem like this mystical, um, spiritual event, um, or kind of try and put it in movies and ways that make it seem very, very strange and very, very bizarre. What the Bible says whenever it talks about Jesus' return is that it's not going to be like someone coming to um, whisk off the faithful to a distant, disembodied heaven. The imagery is always in the line of a king returning along a royal road that has been prepared for him as he brings the life of heaven, the life of the presence of God and what it looks like when God's presence is everything and everywhere to fully inhabit the life of earth. That's what Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter three, when he writes, how do we respond to this? How do we live in the light of the knowledge that one day Jesus is coming to return and set everything to rights again? That he has started a new creation and a new kingdom and one day he's gonna bring it to fulfillment. What do we do in the meantime? Well, We ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed or hasten is coming. And Fleming Rutledge writes about that verse. Here is where the action in waiting comes in, the hastening, the speeding. It is all a matter of what we are pointing towards. The church responds by doing the works of the light the ministry to the prisoners, the soup and sandwiches for the hungry, the houses for the low-income families, the birthday parties for the children who have no parties. These are lamps shining in dark places. These are the works that glorify Christ while we wait for him. This is action while waiting. That's what we see at the end of the Apostle Paul's great exposition of what's it going to look like at the end of time in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, what are we to do? Therefore, we're to give ourselves to the work of the Lord with everything that we have, knowing that our labor is not in vain. This is not something that we do outside of God. This is what God has supremely begun in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus what he will supremely finish when he comes again in glory, but that his action invokes our participation as participants in what he is already doing in the world and what he one day will do finally and for all time. And so the question for us today is which road are we building? Advent invites us to the uncomfortable reality of reckoning with the darkness around us, facing up to the areas in our own lives where we are walking quite happily and quite contentedly along the roads that Rome has built, the roads of fast fashion and factory farming, fossil fuels, and fraudulent finance, the roads in our society. You're going to remember that the roads in our society that are not how they're meant to be, that will not be there when God comes again in glory and sets everything to right, the way in which we treat the environment, the way in which we treat the animals that have been entrusted to us, the way in which we treat the workers and the people who provide for us the basic services and items that we need and use every day, the systems of finance and government that we see around us. It's easy to walk along those roads quite happily, quite contentedly. God is calling us to build a different road. The invitation for us today is to take action in waiting to receive and reveal a very different road. The road that we see at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. It's an image which ties together everything that we've been looking at this morning, everything that we've been looking at throughout Advent. The light which brings perspective, the trust in the throne which lasts forever, and the building of the road which hastens the day when Jesus will return to set everything how it was always meant to be. This is how John puts it in Revelation, tying all those themes and threads together about what will one day come to pass. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. and they will reign forever and ever. That's the future. A future of life flowing from the throne. A future of light breaking out everywhere. A future with a road that leads to healing and wholeness for all. And so we wait. We wait expectantly, we wait trustingly, we wait actively as we live, as we serve, as we give. Why don't we stand together? Jesus, I pray That we would get to grips more and more with the central reality that you have placed within us, the central truth for us that you have committed yourselves to us personally, unalteringly, now and forever. You have given yourself to us in Christ at Christmas. And therefore, From that place, we keep going. We persevere. We work. We serve. Keep care. Love. And do all that we were always meant to do, always created to do. The Genesis 1 command to fill the whole earth with your goodness and your life. We keep going, not as the result of our works, but as the result of your faithfulness. And so we pray, Lord. As we celebrate Christmas, that is what we would remember from this series, that we would go out with a renewed perspective on the darkness around us, but one which does not cause us to despair, but rather to cherish and treasure the light which has come and been given to us. Pray, Lord, we would go out knowing that we can trust in you, that no matter what, Trials there are in the world around us, no matter the confusion and chaos of our political systems, our social structures, that you are on your throne. And therefore, we trust in you. And we go out building a road that will one day prepare a way for the king of kings. A road built not from exploitation, but built because you laid yourself down for us. You gave yourself to us once and for all in your life, death, and resurrection. And so we receive you again today.
0: We thank you. And we go out in your name. Amen.